This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're in chapter 16. Jesus had many followers during his time on the earth. Some stayed with him from the beginning. Others came and went when this preaching got hard or the criticism from religious leaders or even friends and family became too pointed. The real moment of truth came when Jesus made it perfectly clear that he'd come to this earth to die, not to defeat the Romans. That certainly wasn't the popular view of the Messiah's mission. Even today, some would try to remove the cross from Christianity, to make it neater and cleaner, and to make it fit their view of God. But crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all, as we'll learn from today's message from Pastor Pierre. So if you have your Bibles with you, open your text to Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. And let's read together. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A powerful scene here, a very meaningful, a crucial part. In fact, a peak of the training of the disciples here because you remember Peter just uttered the confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus promised to build his church, his construction project on that confession in the person of Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus telling them that there's a cross coming. What I want to do again is get us to understand that true Christianity places the cross in its rightful place. We don't get rid of the cross. We don't avoid mentioning it because it's the central part of our faith. So in order to understand that, here's what I want to do. I want to show you the cross announced, the cross resisted, and the cross explained. That's our outline for today. Let's start with the cross announced. Verse 21. Matthew identifies the beginning of a new season in the lives of the disciples here because they are being prepared. Jesus just announced to them that he's going to start a construction project. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So they're being prepared because these guys are, would launch the Christian movement there. And because Peter, speaking for the group, remember he is the self-appointed spokesman of the group because of his personality. He articulated the divinity of Christ, and therefore Jesus says, You got it right, Peter. You are a small stone, and on this big foundational rock, I will build my church. Now, in the next scene, then Jesus gives them the revelation of the cross, which we will see is nothing really new. The Old Testament already predicted it. But Mark 
describing this scene here, observes that Christ stated the matter plainly. That's in Mark 8, verse 32. In other words, there's no more parables here. This was plain language, a literal and detailed prediction of his passion. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be handed over to the elders and the chief priests, and I'm going to be killed and raised up on the third day. Now, the reason he did that is because the Jews expected a conquering Messiah, a conquering king and general king who would come and crush Rome immediately and establish the millennial kingdom. So the idea of a suffering Messiah was sort of a stumbling block to them, including some of the disciples. In fact, the disciples had such a hard time with this idea that Jesus had to repeat over and over the same idea, the same concept, his impending death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, just the following chapter. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man, and they will kill him, and then he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew 20, verses 18 through 19. Again, the same idea. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Now, in case they missed it, listen to Matthew 26, verses 1 through 2. When Jesus had finished these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And we are just like the disciples, church. How many times does God need to repeat some things for us so that we can understand? And we make the same mistakes over and over again. Many of us need to hear, therefore, the same truth over and over again, because that's just human nature, especially if we struggle with precepts from the Bible that contradict our expectations. We try to explain it away, and then we hear it again in the Bible. God knows human nature. We need to hear it several times. The disciples didn't want to hear about a lowly, humble, suffering Messiah. That was not in their plans. They were so excited about this divine king of kings who heals people and performs miracles and, and wins every argument against the uh, scribes and the Pharisees that they're thinking the kingdom was about to come. But again, there's nothing new here. The Old Testament had already predicted the substitutionary death of Christ, the suffering of the Messiah. For example, Zechariah 12 verse 10 says this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. So the Old Testament already predicted the fact that the flesh of Jesus Christ would be pierced. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 5, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This is from the Old Testament, so they shouldn't have been surprised. Jesus affirms then that the death, burial, and resurrection must happen. Otherwise, there is no redemption. You don't understand. Otherwise, I will not start my construction project. The church, the community of called out believers until I die and raise from the dead. There's no kingdom of heaven to be offered unless Jesus Christ dies the substitutionary death for his redeemed. So the cross announced and now the cross resisted. Verses 22 through 23. From pebble to stumbling block, from blessed to sharply rebuked, Peter now articulates man's view of the cross. 
And we need to understand this. What comes out of Peter's mouth is man's view of the cross. Now, the apostle here, the, the fisherman turned apostles, passionate but arrogant response to Christ reveals his expectation that the Messiah would overthrow Rome in his lifetime and establish the kingdom in the first century. By the way, look at verse 28 again. Jesus is promising them that some of them would see the kingdom before they died. We will talk about this next week. But they were so concerned with seeing the kingdom of God being established here that Peter couldn't think about the, the idea of his Lord being executed. In fact, that thought distraught him so much that he failed to listen to the second part of what Jesus told him. The promise that Jesus would only stay in the grave for three days. He failed to connect. Peter failed to connect what he just heard with the neutralizing of the power of the gates of Hades. You see, this is a good promise. This is something that should encourage him and the other disciples. Yes, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to raise up on the third day. But he didn't want to hear anything like that. In fact, perhaps he got a little proud here. Because Jesus told him, and you will remember, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Everything you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. Everything you bind on the earth will be bound in heaven. Perhaps he thought, okay, I'm just going to say that's not going to happen, and heaven's going to have to agree with me. He began to rebuke Christ. See that in verse 22? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And I have the impression that Jesus interrupted him, because Matthew's saying that he began to speak, and when, when, when Jesus realized that he was just being Peter, he said, well, wait a minute, Peter. Shut your mouth for a little bit. I'm convinced that any one of us would have a similar attitude And the reason for that is because from the day we are born, we are trained to avoid suffering at all costs. We resent suffering. We resent pain and sorrow. And that's not a bad thing. That's how God wired us. We need basic self-preservation skills in order to live in a fallen world. That's survival. That's not a problem. I think we struggle with the fact that God might use tragedies to accomplish His purposes. That is when we argue with God. That is when we say, Lord, you don't know what you're doing. We protest what is happening in our lives when we encounter adversity. This is how unbelievers deal with the reality of suffering in the world. Some of them accuse God of being weak. They say, your God is not powerful enough to prevent suffering. Your God is not powerful enough to prevent starvation or to prevent earthquakes or to prevent a bombing of Afghanistan, whatever. They say, your God is not powerful to stop suffering. And some believers will do the opposite. They're not going to accuse God of weakness, but they were going to accuse God of apathy. They'll say, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's not loving enough. I know he's powerful enough. Maybe he just doesn't care about me or my predicament or whatever the case is. Both perspectives are wrong. Both perspectives come from the pit of hell. According to what Jesus says here when he's confronting Peter, Scripture is very clear that God did not create evil. Okay, let's understand that. God is not the originator of evil. He's not the creator of evil. But he ordains suffering sometimes in the lives of people in order to accomplish his objectives. Consider the following examples. To Moses, God said in Exodus 4 verse 11, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, he allows some people to be born blind and deaf or mute for his purposes, of which we know nothing. About Paul, the risen Lord said, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's in Acts 9, verse 16. 
I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. In other words, that's divinely ordained suffering, church. Let's not resist it. Let's understand that suffering can be a very powerful tool in the hands of God. And by the way, the ultimate suffering, he used that in order to accomplish redemption for you and for me. Peter later seemed to have learned his lesson because this is what he wrote to uh, believers in Asia Minor in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. In other words, Christian, do not be surprised when people oppose you for your faith. Do not be surprised when you suffer for the sake of Christ. Do not be surprised that our culture is ever more hostile against us. We should embrace it. Because that's God's plan for our lives. Now, the cross offends because it represents humiliation, suffering, and death. Things we don't normally associate with the divine. That is a tough, tough sale to make. As an alternative, but very fleshly alternative, because we want people to receive the message. What do we do? We water down the message. We remove the cross from Christianity because we want our family members to hear the good news. So we don't like to really imitate Paul when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's the human perspective, man's perspective on the cross. Verse 22, Peter articulated it very well. Now let's contrast that with God's perspective on verse 23 when Jesus rebukes Peter. See, P Peter has the arrogance of rebuking Christ. He began to do it and Christ put him right in his place. And he identifies the demonic origin of what Peter is talking about here. Now, the reason we know that is because in the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus uttered a very similar rebuke. Matthew 4, verse 10, during the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, the devil offered glory to Jesus before the cross. He said, if you just worship me here, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. So he offered Christ, if you just worship me here, if you just bypass the cross, avoid suffering, and I will give you the kingdoms. What did Jesus tell him? The same expression. Go, Satan, he says, go, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus told Satan to remove the scandal. He said, get behind me, get out of the way of the cross. You are a stumbling block. Literally, the word that he used for stumbling block is a scandal. You are scandalizing me, meaning you are in my way. Get out of the way. In other words, I am going to accomplish what I came here to do, Satan, and namely to redeem undeserving hell-bound sinners, but you are in my way. Get out. Now, when the crucifixion approached, Jesus prayed this. John 12, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. Again, he acknowledges the fact that it's not going to be a walk in the park. Being crucified, he, he was human. Jesus Christ was fully God, fully human. He experienced pain just like you and I would experience pain. Now my soul has become troubled, not only because of the physical pain, but because of the fact that he knew the Father had to turn his face away from him temporarily so that he would not turn his face away from you eternally. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So he knew that this is what he came to do. Satan is standing in his way using one of his choicest servants because of a misdirected zeal to avoid suffering. So he tells Peter, get out of the way. He is addressing Satan who's using Peter's lips. But again, let me reaffirm this, church. This is very important. Like Peter, your tongue can be devastating. We don't realize the power of our tongue sometimes. We start rumors. 
that can be so toxic to the church so as to cause hurt. Your tongue can cause others to stumble. You do the same thing when you try to convince God to eliminate sorrow from your life. You do the exact same thing. Now, hear me carefully. I am not suggesting we shouldn't ask God to remove the cup of suffering from us. We do it all the time. I do it all the time. I say, Lord, please, I am not ready for this. I don't want to have to deal with this now. This is not in my time schedule, in my timetable here. Please remove this cup from me. I don't want to deal with this. I am suggesting, however, that we pray like this. Jesus Christ is the example. Nevertheless, your will be done. Luke 22, verse 42. Trying to remove suffering from Christianity serves man's interests, not God's. Attempting to eliminate the offense of the cross from Christianity serves Satan's plans, not God's. Thankfully, God sanctified Peter's lips. He finally understood the divine perspective about the cross. Listen to how he preached to the Jews. Acts 2, verse 22, verse 23. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders, with signs with God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So Peter finally got the picture that the cross was God's predetermined plan before even the foundation of the world, not as a plan B. There is no oops in God's vocabulary. We need to understand when in Genesis 3, man sinned, God didn't say, oh man, what am I going to do now? I guess I'm going to have to send my son to be crucified for them. No, no, that's not the picture, church. The cross has always been God's plan A for the redemption of humanity. There is no plan B. God doesn't make mistakes. God never adjusts course. He is sovereign. He knows what's going to happen beforehand. He ordains what's going to happen beforehand. So he foreordained the cross. He predetermined that the cross would take place. It was not an accident. Even though Peter says very clearly here, you nailed him to a cross. You are culpable. You are guilty of murder. But I want you to know it was God's predetermined plan. Those are the words from a man who said, God forbid it. It shall never happen to you. Jesus, if you're giving me the keys to the kingdom, I'm going to determine that you're not going to the cross. Only to be rebuked by Jesus Christ. And the Lord is saying, don't try to remove the cross from Christianity. There is no faith. There is no Christianity without the cross. If all you talk about is health and wealth and happiness and, and wanting to be fulfilled and having your best life now, you have no Christianity. Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Why? So that every one of us who place our trust in Him have the opportunity to not be crushed forever. Can you think of anything more gracious? Can you think of a kinder God? Now, can you think of anything more arrogant and proud than resisting the purpose of Christ? The cross announced, the cross resisted, and now the cross explained. Verses 24 through 28, He says, in verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh boy, what an unpopular message. Jesus is saying to them, I am not the only one on the way to the cross. He died his atoning death on the cross, of course, but his true followers get to carry 
the cross. Church, fellow believer in Christ, can you think of anything more distinguished and honorable to identify with your Savior so much that you gladly take up your cross and follow Christ? Now, Paul articulates this honor very well when he says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So church, we have been crucified with Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a born-again believer in Christ, your desires have been crucified. Your wants have been crucified. What you think is best has been sent to death on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you now live a life that is filled with Christ. And you live by faith. You laid all your desires, all your plans. You deny yourself. You put everything at the foot of the cross. Anything contrary to that is a counterfeit Christianity. It's a crossless Christianity. When you became a believer, my friend, you signed your death certificate to the world. But God signed your birth certificate to eternal life. And that is what Paul is talking about here. So let's spend the remainder of our time here talking about the present and the future aspects of this cross-filled life. Not a cross-less Christianity, but a cross-filled life. Verses 24 through 26, what we have is crucifixion now. Crucifixion now. Jesus says, if anyone desires to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Now his statement would have shocked the disciples. Once again, because immediately in their minds, they are picturing the image of a condemned criminal carrying the horizontal beam of the cross to the crucifixion site. Rome used to dot the roads of Roman roads with crucified victims along the way to show everybody, this is what's going to happen to you if you oppose the government. <laughs> you think you have it hard now? You think you're experiencing tyranny now? Taking up the cross doesn't mean enduring a difficult family member. It does not mean having to deal with an obnoxious boss or even bad health. That is not your cross. That is not what Jesus Christ is talking about here. The Roman cross pictures execution, humiliation, pain, and death, self-sacrifice, self-denial. Church, the call of the Christian life demands self-denial, discomfort, and if necessary, physical death. The call of the Christian life is the call to die. Die to yourself. Die to your plans. Die to your freedom if necessary. For the sake of the gospel. Christ summons his followers to crucify their desires and relinquish their rights for the sake of the gospel. I'm afraid the majority of Christians in our society today have no interest in hearing that. The majority of quote-unquote Christians, nominal Christians, know very little of forsaking everything to follow Jesus. You forsake everything to follow Christ. That is the truth of a cross-filled Christianity. But the present and future aspects of our salvation, there's crucifixion now and coronation later. That is what Jesus says here. There's coronation later. Verses 27 through 28, he completes his prediction of the crucifixion with the promise of glory. Okay, so he's saying, I'm going to die and be raised up again, and I'm going to come back. So he is giving them the gospel here, a very abbreviated version of the gospel, including the return of Christ. And in verse 27, Jesus refers to the retribution that will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every person who refuses to embrace the cross and follow Christ 
will have to answer for every one of their sinful deeds because they have rejected the cross. They have rejected Christ's atoning sacrifice on their behalf. Therefore, their only solution for them, tragically, is you forfeit your soul. And Jesus is very clear. When you try to remove the cross from Christianity, that's what you get. But when you embrace the cross, yes, you will embrace suffering now. You will deny yourself and everything you have for my sake. You will have to endure the suffering that comes with that. But there's coronation coming later. And in verse 28, he promises that some of them will see a preview of that kingdom glory in their lifetime, which he describes in the very next scene, in case you were wondering. That's the transfiguration of Christ. When Jesus Christ reveals his divinity, and it says, this is who I am, the Shekinah glory of God bursting forth in glory through his garments. And they needed that type of encouragement because of what they just heard. They needed that encouragement of seeing the glorified Christ because hard days awaited them. So church, we have the same perspective here. Hard days may await us, but there's a promise of a future coronation. And we are going to be crowned with Him. Just like your Savior. Yes, you will suffer in this life. But that's only temporary because you will reign with Him forever. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.